This is the One Verse Podcast, where we liberate Scripture from religion, one verse at a time. Welcome to another episode of the One Verse Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Myers. Hey, have you ever realized that in Genesis 1, God doesn't actually create dry ground? Instead, he simply pushes back the waters so that the dry ground appears. You ever tried to do that yourself? Next time it rains, go out and find a mud puddle. Try to push back the water to make a little dry ground area in the middle of it. Pretty much impossible, right? So why does Moses write it this way? Well, that's what we're going to see in Genesis 1-9, the text we're looking at today. And we're going to see that pretty much just as with every other verse in the creation account, Moses is making a theological point that his Israelite, his Hebrew audience would have recognized and understood. And when we see that point, we will also see what Moses is teaching us about sacred spaces, religious spaces, about holy ground. If you tend to think that God is more present at your church building or on top of some sacred mountain somewhere, or maybe in a special prayer sanctuary, well, you will want to listen to today's episode and see what Moses has to say about all these sorts of places. Hey, and I want to say also that just as with every other episode, this episode is brought to you by Logos Bible Software. You can get 15% off your purchase of any of their packages by using my coupon code JMyers6 over at Logos.com. Get your package today. I use it in all of my study and research. I also wanted to invite you to leave a rating and review of this podcast over at iTunes. Lots of you have left ratings and reviews already. Let me just read a few of them. Steven says, Pretty cool. Jeremy is well-versed, and that's no pun intended. He's also funny without knowing it. For example, in my opening episode, how... He says, uh, how long it would take to do five-minute podcasts in every verse of the Bible. If you didn't listen to my opening episode, I said it would take over 100 years, and that was if I did three episodes a week. I'm only doing one episode a week, so we're looking at over 300 years. I hope you're ready for that. Anyway, thank you, Stephen, for the review. Free Will Giver says, I'm a fan of Jeremy's blog, and I am so glad he has a podcast. I am sure any listener will find themselves challenged to love Jesus in grace. Thank you for saying that. That is one of my goals here to help people love Jesus, live like Jesus, look like Jesus more. T. Dunbar says, Amazing! Instead of going to bed last night, I listened to Jeremy's podcast. I think the last time I pulled an all-nighter was during my college days. He clearly presented the Word of God without the trappings of religiosity and traditionalism. He goes on from there. Thank you for saying that. Matt McWilliams says, Wow, One Verse Podcast is flat-out awesome. Good production quality, easy to listen to. Very impressed, Jeremy. Thank you, Matt, for saying that. Several others in here. Ecom, I'm not sure what that name is. He says, I can't get enough of Jeremy's teachings. It is obvious he is a gifted teacher, has passion for the Lord. Through his teaching, he is engaging, passionate, and offers a plethora of content. The package deal. Uh, Thank you for saying all those things. Fedora Mike. One verse is a great title, concept for a podcast. Um, Yeah, he says it might get a little monotonous in the so-and-so begot so-and-so chapters. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) I think when we get there, I'll probably do one one, uh, episode for the entire genealogy. And then M. Wilson, 
This one just came in yesterday, said, This is a very good podcast. Jeremy's exploring the Bible one verse at a time. The material is great and thought-provoking. He presents ideas that make you think. By presenting historical background, cultural context, and a down-to-earth teaching style, Jeremy is truly separating Scripture from religion. Hey, thanks, guys, for leaving those ratings and reviews. I really, really appreciate it. They also give me some good feedback. I think I saw one somewhere, and now I don't see it showing up. They were saying that the 30-minute time frame was good. You might remember that I originally wanted to do 5 to 10 minutes. Um, All of my episodes so far have been in the 25 to 30-minute range. I'm really shooting for 20. But I'd appreciate your rating and review as well. Just go over to iTunes and uh, let me know what you want for future episodes. Now, with all of that out of the way, let's move on and look at Genesis 1-9 and the text we have for today. Uh, All right, so Genesis 1-9 is really the first verse in the third day of creation. Now, if you listen to my episode on Genesis 1-5, you might remember that I'm not uncomfortable calling them days of creation, but I don't think that what Moses was trying to do here was give us a literal 24-hour day thing. He was responding to the way the Egyptian religion had uh, organized their religious writings around the worship of the sun god Ra, with it being morning and evening, the, 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 the birth and uh, death of, of, their, of Ra. And so Moses was reversing that by saying, and it was evening and it was morning. And it's a poetic way of making a theological point. So although, although you can refer to these as days, I sort of hinted back in Genesis 1-5, it might be better to refer to them as panels. We've got seven ultimate panels, the first three, are parallel to the second three, and then the seventh is the final, the day of rest. So anyway, this third panel, this third day, is Genesis 1, 9 through 13, and we're going to look at just Genesis 1, 9 today. This uh, This third panel, this third day, is the final forming activity of God. Again, uh, you might remember, again, go back to listen to Genesis 1, the episode on Genesis 1, 2, where I point out that... um, Before God begins creating anything, creation is described as being formless and void, or that that void could also be empty, formless and empty. And uh, the six days of creation are organized to reverse those two words. Uh, The first three days are when God forms creation, reversing the fact that uh, the creation was formless. And then the second three days, days four, five, and six— are when he fills creation. So uh, reversing the fact that it was um, empty or, or void. All right, and then they're parallel as well. I pointed that as well out. Uh, day one is parallel to day four. Day two is parallel to day five. And then day three is parallel to day six. Anyway, uh, listen to those episodes to sort of get that idea. Genesis, the episodes on Genesis 1-5 and the episode on Genesis 1-2. Uh, this then, Genesis 1, 9 through 13's third day of the creation poem, this third sort of panel, third section. And on this day, God causes the dry land to appear, and he covers it with vegetation. I can't cover all of that in this one verse episode today. We're just going to look at the first verse of day three, which is Genesis 1, 9, and it says this. Then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Now, notice carefully 
what is and is not being said here. Notice that uh, Genesis 1, uh, never not just this verse, but the entire chapter, it never actually says that God created the water. You're not going to find a verse anywhere that says, and God said, let there be water. Um, the water exists in Genesis 1-2 before the first day of creation begins in Genesis 1-3 and following, all right? So, uh, and now, this doesn't mean, don't, I'm not saying that the water is eternal. I do not believe that matter is eternal. Uh, I, I believe, my personal belief, is that God created the water in Genesis 1-1. But again, uh, that is before the first day of creation. That's why the, we see the water there in Genesis 1-2. <clears throat> the point um, is that in, in these six days of creation, we do not read of God creating the water. On day one, God says, let there be light, and there's light. And then on day two, God says, let there be a firmament. He creates this firmament to separate the waters above from the waters below. Uh, here, in Genesis 1-9, on the third day of creation, God, uh, he continues to work with the water. He, he does something more with the water. Uh, specifically, he gathers the waters below into one place. And I, I'm saying this because I want you to note as well that the text doesn't actually say that God created the dry land either. What it says is that he, he causes the dry land to appear. So, um, and, and why does it appear? Uh, it's not because he necessarily raises it up, but notice very carefully what the text says. The dry land appears because God pushed the waters away. He gathered the waters together into one place. Uh, what this means is that the, the, just like the water, the land existed prior to day one of creation. Uh, but it was hidden, it was covered over by the water. Uh, so, day three, lots of times in, in, in Bible commentaries and from Bible teachers, you're going to hear people say that day three is the day that God created the land. But it doesn't say that, it, um, and, and we're going to see why. There is a point to this. Um, day three is not the day God created the land. Day three is the day that God continues to form. It's a forming day when God forms the water. And when he forms the water, the dry land appears. Uh, now, <clears throat> so let's talk about why this is. Why is the text written this way? Why does it focus on the waters below? Well, again, going back to what we learned in Genesis 1-6, uh, there we read that God, <clears throat> after he, excuse me, after he formed the firmament, God separated the waters above from the waters below, and so now God is turning his focus specifically on the waters below, and he's commanding them to be gathered together so that the dry land appears. Uh, so what's the point of this? What's what's the why does Moses write it this way? Well, it's not because he's giving a scientific explanation. Again. Look, go out and find a mud puddle next time it rains, or go to the local pond or the local creek or whatever, and try to push back some water so you can get some dry land to appear inside of it. It's not going to happen. You cannot push back water so that dry land appears. So some people, again, scientists and critics look at this and say, see, this is not going to happen. What God's doing here cannot work. And then Christians try to respond to it and say, well, what's going on here is volcanoes and earthquakes. And, you know, we try to come up with a scientific, rational, naturalistic explanation for how this is happening. And you know what? It's not the point. 
I'm emphasizing this over and over and over again. The solution to understanding Genesis 1, and in fact much of the scriptures, is not to read it through a scientific, naturalistic uh, mind frame. Moses is not writing a scientific treatise to explain how the earth came to be. This is a literary, poetic, theological creation song to teach the Israelites, and you, and me, about the God that we serve. So, when we read Genesis 1-9 as poetry, we discover much in this verse that is similar to what we've already seen in the previous two days of creation. First, uh, waters below are gathered together, and so that dry land appears. Now, uh, as I pointed out previously, uh, and as is true with this verse, there are numerous parallels to what Moses writes here and what you can read about in the creation myths of other religions at the time. Uh, This theme of the waters pushing back or being pushed back was, you ready, found in numerous Egyptian creation myths, primarily because they depended on the waters of the Nile flooding, and then what happens? Receding every year so that the people of Egypt could be fed. Every year, the Nile would flood and bring with it nutrients and silt and all sorts of things. It would flood their fields and so on, so that then in the following year, the fields could depend on the the, the moisture and the silt and the nutrients that was brought by the flood. And the Egyptians always said that this was because the gods were bringing the water, and then the gods were pushing back the water so that their crops could grow, so that they could have healthy crops. And if if this didn't happen, then they figured that the gods were angry at them, and famine and starvation would result, right? So, So this is what the Egyptian people believed, and this is what the Israelite, the Hebrew people, would have seen as they lived there for over 400 years in Egypt. And in fact, in the Egyptian creation myths... Uh, they even have stories about how this works. And very In the beginning, they said, the god Atum was floating on the infinite waters. This is what they, they have myths about this. And uh, the, as the water—he wasn't conscious yet, he was just floating. And as the waters recede, uh, he finds himself on a primordial hill. And he becomes— conscious, and he becomes the first living being. He's the very first deity. He, he, he is formed, he is created, he comes into existence along with the existence of, or the creation of the formation of the land. All this is described in a, a, an article by Gordon Johnston. I've uh, included a link to the article in the show notes. I've mentioned it before, maybe you've already read the article, but uh, there's a link in the show notes. Anyway, in this Egyptian creation account, the god Atum, he's brought to life along with the land. He does not exist before the land. The land does not exist before him. They come into existence together. And what the Egyptian creation myth is saying is uh, that Atum is tied to the land, and he depends on the land for his existence. Uh, As a result, you can imagine sort of this land, this primordial hill, it's almost deified. The hill is a tomb, and a tomb is the hill. They're connected, they're tied together. Uh, if you've read much of these creation myths, you, you'll see that this is often the way it is in these creation accounts. 
Very few of the deities of these creation myths uh, actually set out to create anything. In fact, sometimes they themselves are created when other things are formed. Uh, and, And in fact, when they form things, when they create things, it's usually by accident or by some cosmic war or battle that occurred. Uh, or is in the case of Atum, uh, just when when Atum comes into existence, the land comes into existence with him. He is dependent. He comes from the land. Now, that is not at all what we see going on here in Genesis 1. Um, the water and the land are not deified. They are not gods, and they don't give birth to any gods. In the Genesis account, Genesis account, there is only one God, and rather than being tied to, tied to the land or coming from the land, God pulls back the waters so that the dry land appears. Uh, it's a super important theological point. Uh, the water, remember, again, the waters were seen by the ancient Israelites as dangerous, as the abode of, of chaos and storms. It was to home. We looked at that in Genesis 1-2. It was the deep, the abyss. And so by instructing the waters to recede, by commanding the waters to pull back, God is showing, as he has throughout this text, that he has power over the waters. They obey his instructions. This would have been super important for the Hebrew people. The gods are not in control of, of uh, the, the Egyptian gods were not really in control of the waters. Uh, they were to a degree, but, but uh, the waters were also sort of control, control of the gods. And, and uh, then remember, remember what happened to the Israelites, to the Hebrew people, as they left Egypt. As they left Egypt, the Egyptian army came out to bring them back, right? They, they regretted that they had let their slaves go, and so Pharaoh sends out his army to bring back his slaves, and they, they capture, or they, they trap, I should say, uh, the Hebrew people at the bank of the Red Sea. And what does God do? Very much like here in Genesis 1. A wind blows over the surface of the Red Sea, and what happens? God doesn't raise up the land. No, he pushes back the water creating a path through on the dry land. Very, very similar to what we read here in Genesis 1-9. And it's not the only time God does this. Uh, Forty years later, when the Israelite people are about to enter the Promised Land, God does the same thing with the Jordan River. Uh, God wants to show the Israelites that he is Lord of the waters. And probably some of you are thinking that uh, Jesus does something very similar, and that's right. In the Gospel accounts, when his Uh, Jesus calms the storm. He commands the storm and calms the water so that his disciples can arrive safely on the dry land, on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. I think that's one of the places that God is showing his, or Jesus is showing his disciples and us that he is God. He, like God in the beginning, like the God who brought his people through the Red Sea and through the Jordan River, he is God who commands the original waters. He is the God who calms the storms and commands the waters, and they obey him. We're going to see more of this in Genesis 6-8. through The flood is sort of a reversal of creation, and then after the flood, God once again pushes back the waters. The waters recede so that dry land appears. All right. The theological point here is that while the waters, uh, this Tehom, the deep, the abyss— uh, were viewed by people at that time as being in rebellion to God, right? Over and over and over again so far in the Genesis account, we're seeing that uh, even though they were viewed as malevolent forces against God, 
God's not in any danger from them. He controls them. He commands him. They obey him. God harnesses the sea and uses it for good for mankind, right? Uh, And beyond this, the fact that instead of calling forth the dry land, God causes the waters to recede, tells us something else really important, critically important about God. Again, in, in the other creation myths, the ones that Moses is alluding to, referring to, uh, the creator deity calls forth the land, and the land appears, and then the god claims that bit of land for himself. Uh, there are, in that Gordon Johnson article talks about four different versions of creation myths, and each one comes from a different region of Egypt. Um, Heliopolis, Hermopolis, Memphis, and Thebes. All right, so, so four, four regions, four cities in, in Egypt. And wouldn't you know it, each one, Gordon Johnson points out, each, each region has its own stories, own creation myth, its own variation of how the world came to be. And not surprisingly, you know how probably what happens, uh, what is the first bit of land that appears in each one of these creation myths? Well, it's, it's the city, it's the hill on which that particular city, that particular religious tradition, built its temple to its deity, right? So, so Hermopolis, for example, the, the religious tradition that came from there, guess what the first piece of land was that appeared? Well, it was the city on which Hermopolis was built, and the, specifically the hill on which the temple in Hermopolis was built, right? So, uh, but what does Moses say about the land that appeared in Genesis 1? Look, it's not some small portion of land, not little islands somewhere. There's not little little piece of uh, dirt that pops up out of, the, out of the, the water somewhere so that we can build a shrine or a temple on that little island, on that little mountain to God. No, the land that appears in Genesis 1-9 is what? The whole earth. In fact, I should point out, the word land is not even in Genesis 1-9. Uh, it, literally, the Hebrew, it doesn't have the word land there, it just has the word dry. So you could say in Genesis 1-9 that, that God says, let the dry appear. I think the point is that Moses is, is trying to say, look, there wasn't just a little piece of land, a little piece of dry land somewhere that appeared. Everything that's dry appeared at the command of God. Everything. If it's dry, it's from God. Uh, whether it's where we live or whether it's across the other side of the world. The Egyptian deities, oh, they have this little piece of land, this little mountain somewhere, and that's where they live, that's what they're tied to, that's, that's where their temple must be built. But God, Yahweh, all land is his land. Everything that's dry belongs to God. There's not a, a sacred mountain, there's not a, a holy island, there's not a, a, you know, a specific place where you can go to where God dwells. He is God of all earth, not just a small portion of it, like those Egyptian deities. All earth came from him, not he from the earth. By the way, maybe as I've been going through this, you might be remembering that uh, day three is parallel to day six in the creation account, and on day six, there is a being that comes from the land. In the Egyptian creation myths, uh, the beings that come from the land are gods. Ah, and what comes from the land in day six? Well, you know who that being is. We'll look more at that text when we get there. 
uh, something very, very surprising about what Moses writes in, in, uh, about day six in Genesis 1, and in Genesis 2, by the way. Anyway, here in Genesis 1-9, Moses is saying God is not tied to the land, he does not come from the land, he is not tied to a particular island or mountain, and uh, all land is God's land. All places are God's places. Every place is sacred and holy to God. That should make us think twice about the religious belief in sacred spaces. All earth is God's temple, God's dwelling place. Okay? There's not a sacred temple or sacred piece of land in which God lives. We cannot and must not think of, in a more modern terminology, of, of our, our church buildings as holy places. There is no holy place. And actually, uh, I should rephrase that. Every place is a holy place. Uh, um, every place is sacred. In God's creation, God is the God of all land and all places. Every place is God's place. Every mountain is God's mountain. Every building is built on God's land. Whether you set your foot in a building here in the United States or over in, in China or Saudi Arabia, that's part of God's house. Not the building, the land on which it is built is, is God's house. Don't don't think about a brick building with a steeple down on the corner as God's house. It isn't. Wherever you are right now is part of God's house. In fact, as we read in the New Testament, you and I are the sanctuary, the tabernacle of God. We are the dwelling place of God. And we are everywhere. Wherever we go, you're with God, God's with you. That's what makes Genesis 1-9 so comforting and encouraging. Not only does it show us that no matter where we are, God is with us. It also reminds us that if you're drowning under a flood of chaos, storms of life are battering and beating you down, look, we worship, we love, we are protected, we are guided by a God who pulls back the waters and allows a safe haven of dry land to appear instead. Just as he brought his disciples through the storm and calmed the storm and brought them safely to dry land, that's what God will do to you. It's what God did for his people as he brought them through the Jordan River, as he brought them through the Red Sea, as he, as he rescued Noah and his family through the flood. It's what God does for you and for me. If you are in a flood of life, God will bring you through whatever flood you're facing in your life today. Finally, and I'll close with this, I really appreciate the insight Moses has about sacred spaces. Though humans often think that certain mountains are holy, or certain buildings are sacred, or God dwells in certain religious buildings, temples, or sanctuaries, look, from the very, very beginning of creation, we see God setting himself apart from the other deities, from the other religions of the world. God is not, he's not bound to a piece of dirt somewhere. He doesn't live on a hill. He's not tied to a building. God is everywhere. Every building is sacred. Every bit of land is holy. Every corner of every part of the earth is in God's house. So listen. Do not ever feel that you have been abandoned by God or that, that God has left you alone. He hasn't. He said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Wherever you go, God is right there with you. 
Hey, I want to thank you for listening to today's episode on Genesis 1-9. If you have comments, questions, want to provide some of your own insights and suggestions on Genesis 1-9, you can do so at the show notes. Uh, it's redeeminggod.com slash Genesis 1-9. And hey, I really appreciate if you would leave a rating and review at iTunes. If you do, I will try to read it in future episodes. If you leave a mention of your own podcast or maybe your own blog or website, I'll, I'll mention that as well. Thank you for reading. Really appreciate it. See you in the next episode when we look at Genesis 1 verse 10.